from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning, my name is Florida Ellis, and I'm currently serving as one of the elders on the session here at First Pres. Please join me in the call to worship. Our God is a God of power and strength. God has created each of us with tender care. Our God is a God of majesty and awe. God walks with each of us every step of the way. Our God is a God of glory and wonder. God loves each of us with tenderness and passion. Our God calls each of us a name. God calls each of us to unite in worship together. Friends, let us worship God. Our first scripture lesson comes from Isaiah chapter 43, and we'll actually be reading the first seven verses, 43, 1 through 7. Listen for and hear the word of God. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you. I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for glory, whom I formed and made. From the Gospel of Luke, the third chapter, verses 15 through 22. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me, a story that recounts another baptism many years ago. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming, and I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler, who had been rebuked by John because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them by shutting up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space. We have a hunch that you're already doing that. And so would you complete that work for this time and for this hour so that we may be more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. When Katie, my wife, and I were living overseas, we had the regular opportunity to travel. One excursion had us exploring a mid-sized German city on a day when two rival soccer teams were squaring off in a heated, critical, and late-season match. As we ended our little exploration, our departure actually coincided with the end of the game. And so we went to the Bonhoeff, we went to the train station, we, we got on the platform, we were by ourselves, and then a few moments uh, passed, and all of a sudden we heard loud voices coming up the stairs to, to reach the platform. On one side gathered a group of fans from the winning team, and on the other side gathered a group of fans from the losing team. Now, the winning team was celebrating. They were boisterous. They were boastful, hurling insults and chants across our heads to the opposing team's fans. They returned the volley with anger and bitterness because they had just lost. And as these words were being exchanged, people from both sides started moving closer and closer and closer together. We were right in the middle of it. Katie and I kind of grabbed hands. We said a little prayer. We thought we would be caught in the crossfire as people became more and more agitated at one another, leaning, spewing venom in their words, most of which I couldn't understand. When all of a sudden, the Pulitzer, the police, came up and diffused the whole situation. It is probably an accurate thing to say that sports is one of the most prominent ways us versus them instincts are put on display. You'd agree with that, right? Pittsburgh Steelers fans <laughs> and Cincinnati Bengals fans, Kevin, would agree with that. Many sociologists and psychologists will tell us that we form groups for many reasons that we huddle together for a myriad of purposes, three of which come to the top. Number one, we, 
we form groups for safety, to protect ourselves. Number two, we form groups to provide for our identity a sense of belonging, that we belong to somebody, to a group of people. And number three, we form groups to make meaning out of the world that we collectively get together and we, we come to some agreement on what the world should look like and what life should look like, meaning, of course, is contingent on what particular group is defining that which is meaningful. And that's why when you look across the globe or, or look across even the church, you see plurality, you see difference as, as different groups and peoples and organizations define what is meaningful. Religious sociologist Peter Berger has argued that religion plays a primary and significant role in making meaning for our lives and for our society. Religious communities are more times than not formed out of a common and shared theological conviction about a god or, or various gods or, or even some worldview or some philosophy. And they also have a shared and common social understanding of what human beings should believe and how human beings should behave in light of their worldview, in light of their theology. Now, naturally, religion is an enterprise. This is an understatement, right? is an enterprise not immune from us versus them instincts. I remember visiting with a college student who had just completed their first semester, and they were sharing about their involvement with a theologically conservative campus ministry. At a small group Bible study, this young man shared a particular theological conviction that was not normative for this group. And he quickly felt like the group was pushing him from being an insider to an outsider. They even said to him, look, unless you believe this about this particular issue, then you're not really a true Christian. Liberal communities, theological liberal communities are in the same boat, not immune to this type of mentality. There are plenty of religious communities, churches even, that, that proclaim a, a total inclusivity. They proclaim total acceptance. They proclaim total welcome until you might dissent or disagree with some political or social or even theological position. And then you have the experience like the college student experienced where, where you're an insider, but now you're slowly being pushed to the outside. Us versus them instincts infiltrate, can infiltrate the life of a community of faith. What is more, may also infiltrate and dare we even say contaminate the way we read and understand the scriptures. Take, for example, Luke 3.16. And this word from John the Baptist at Jesus' baptism where the prophet declares that one will come after him who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that he will baptize you with the fire of the Holy Spirit. He says he will baptize you with both, both the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, one prevalent interpretation that still hangs around today in the life of the church 
finds its genesis in the third century. There's a church father. His name was Origen, and he interpreted this particular line, Luke 3.16, to mean that Jesus' ministry and his baptism, what he would do in and for the world, would actually bring two outcomes, two very distinct outcomes, that those who would repent of their sins, that those who would turn toward God and follow Jesus Christ in the world, that they would receive the outcome of grace, that they would receive the outcome of the Holy Spirit, that God's very Spirit would actually dwell in their life. But there's a second outcome, Origen said. He said, look, if, if you don't repent, if you, if you don't turn, if you reject God, well, then the outcome's a little different. The outcome, Origen said, right from this text, is unquenchable fire. You're going to burn. For origin, the Holy Spirit and fire were two distinct outcomes of Jesus' ministry. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, doesn't fire, isn't fire often associated with the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures? Yes, it, it is. But in this case, when Origen read this text, and, and people still read this text this way, they see Jesus came to, to have a dividing line. Those who are part of the repentant class who receive the Holy Spirit and those who are not, who receive the judgment of unquenchable fire. An interpretation of this text that includes judgment, I want to be very clear about this, is certainly not absurd. Jewish understandings of the coming of the Messiah included a conviction that the Messiah would render the justice of God in the world both in a spiritual and a political sense. And so if Jesus were the Messiah, that would mean that part of his ministry would actually include judgment. That part of what Jesus came to do was actually to judge. Now, a Jesus that brings judgment doesn't quite jive with some 21st century hipster views of Jesus, does it? Most people today, even within the life of the church, look at Jesus' ministry as sort of a judgment-free zone. He, he just kind of loves us just as we are, just lets us be as, as we are, and, and maybe judges folks like, I don't know, terrorists, but certainly not folks like us. But the Jesus we meet in the Gospels not only loves people as they are, and that's true, he loves people just as they are, but he also calls people to a new way of being human, a call that often includes a judgment against the behaviors and beliefs that deface the image of God in us and in the other. He makes judgments about what belongs in the kingdom of God and what doesn't. Still, for many Christians that accept the fact that judgment is, yes, in fact, a part of Jesus' ministry, many Christians become comfortable with Origen's interpretation. All right, we'll give you room to have judgment, Jesus, in your ministry, but certainly the judgment is not reserved for me. It's reserved for somebody else. I mean, think about it here. Just follow my, my thinking here. If I'm an insider... If I consider myself or my church or my community to be part of the repentant class who has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, who has received grace, 
then by default, the fire of God's judgment is reserved for somebody else, not me. I'm the wheat. I'm good. Hey, we're the insiders. Those people out there, they're, they're, they're the chaff. They're evil. They're outsiders. I experience God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, and those others will experience God's judgment in an unquenchable fire. But what if there's another way to read this text? What if there's another way to read this text? What if, what if there is a more faithful interpretation that didn't rely Put on, on putting on the, the lenses of us versus them or insiders versus outsiders to get an understanding of what Luke was trying to communicate to the church in chapter 3, verse 16. What if this saying doesn't mean that God's grace is reserved for us and God's judgment is reserved for them? What if the baptism that Jesus came to inaugurate equally brings both grace and judgment? What if it equally brings both Holy Spirit and fire to all of us? What if our theology of baptism included not just a grace that declares that we're beloved and, and elected sons and daughters of the living God, but also declares that there are parts of us, behaviors and beliefs that must actually be drowned in the waters of baptism? What if our theology of baptism calls us to remember that we are all a little bit of wheat and chaff rolled into one, and that a life of discipleship actually includes the judgment of God and allows God to burn up by unquenchable fire that which impedes our vocation to follow Christ, that which impedes our vocation to love God, to love our neighbor, and to love ourselves, which, friends, is what it really means to be a human being. What if God's work in your life and my life right now, right now in this very moment, what if God is working by the power, power of God's Holy Spirit in such a way that's bringing both grace and judgment, both Holy Spirit and fire? I'll close with this. We may have reached the tipping point where a sermon illustration referencing Tolkien's Lord of the Rings has become passe. At the risk of being so five minutes ago, pardon me for this illustration. One of the great features of that story, of that novel, unlike other stories where the main character has a task to find something or to save something, The Lord of the Rings is a narrative that has the main character, Frodo Baggins, a hobbit from the Shire, on a quest to actually lose something, to lose something. He's on what some folks would call a reverse quest. The ring that was forged in Mount Doom in the land of Mordor is a source of great power and it corrupts and it brings evil in the world and it must be destroyed and Frodo is, is called upon. His vocation is to, is to have this ring destroyed. He has to take it to, to the unquenchable fires of Mount Doom and throw it in and, and, and rid the world of evil. And along this journey, Frodo is constantly assailed and, and attacked and blitzed by evil. Several times throughout the tale, as you're reading it for a different generation who's watching the movies, several times throughout the story, you think Frodo is going to give up. 
You think he's going to be killed. You think it's going to be the end. But then by some act of grace, it's in many ways unexplained, whether it's through his, his protectors or whether it's through his, his friends and that, that fellowship of the rings or some fantastic or magical divine intervention, somehow Frodo is saved and his journey continues on. And by this unexplained grace, Frodo finally reaches Mordor. He finally reaches Mount Doom. And he's looking over into the unquenchable fire that will destroy this power that has tempted him, that is, that is sought to even take his life. And, and he comes to this moment where he can't do it. Where he cannot rid himself of the ring. He wants to hold on to it. He, he knows it has to be burned up. He knows it has to be destroyed, but he holds on to it. And, and many folks, if, if you just sort of ask a simple question, does Frodo destroy the ring? Folks say, yeah, he destroys the ring. He actually doesn't destroy the ring. By another act of random, maybe intentional grace, this weird creature named Gollum rips the ring from his finger and as he does, he falls into the unquenchable fire and the ring finally burns. Here's the analogy. There are things that you and I carry in our lives that we need to lose. There are things in our lives that Christ is judging. Things that we carry that need to be burned up. Things that we cannot destroy ourselves and so we need an act of divine intervention we need an act of grace we need an act of god that will judge those things and take them from our lives and have them burn maybe we have bitterness towards someone or some life event that we cannot let go or we possess an arrogant self-righteousness that requires everyone to see things our way or or maybe we've kept hidden or kept secret destructive behaviors that are destroying our inner lives and and pushing the people that love us the most far away from us or maybe we've come to the conclusion that we are all that we need and we've walked away from God. Or maybe we have hoarded that which God has called us to steward and called us to share for the good of the world. Or maybe we have decided that life is our own personal fulfillment playground, even if it means undermining or even robbing the fulfillment of someone else. Or maybe we've come to a place where we loathe and we reject ourselves and buy into the lie that we must do more or be more to earn God's love and God's approval. All of these and so much more that we carry simply needs to be burned up. But here's the good news. When God renders God's judgment against the shaft of our lives... It is always done in service to God's grace. When God exercises judgment, it's always done in service to God's grace. It's God's grace that elects us. It's God's grace that allows us to journey on, even when we are assailed and attacked and blitzed and tempted and have failed time and time again. It is God's grace that leads us to the precipice of judgment to the fires that will burn up all that is antithetical to a life of faithfulness. It is God's grace through the prophet Isaiah that reminds us, do not fear, 
For I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Friends, it is God's grace that brings us up out of the waters of baptism. It is God's grace that burns up that which God does not want in our lives without destroying or consuming us. It is by God's grace that we have received a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. And receive it, we must, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen. I think that God may be wanting to do in your life and in my life is a work of both grace and judgment. It's a work that brings a declaration that we are beloved sons and daughters of the living God. It brings the very indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives to empower us. It also brings a word of judgment to burn up the things that, that impede and, and, and hinder that which would allow us to be more of who God's called us to be. So this week, I'd encourage you in prayer and in reflection, 
in conversation with people close to you? What does it mean to allow God to work both spirit and fire in our lives? And for that road ahead, may the peace of Christ, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in him. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day of your life.